Chapter Four of the Spanish Brothers by Deborah Alcock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Four, Alcala de Henares. Give me back, give me back the wild freshness of morning. Her tears and her smiles are worth evening's best light. Moore. Few are the lives in which seven years come and go without witnessing any great event. But whether they are eventful or no, the years that change children into men must necessarily be important. Three of these important seven Juan and Carlos Alvarez spent in their mountain home, the remaining four at the University of Alcala, or Complutum. The university trading was of course needful for the younger brother, who was intended for the church. That the elder was allowed to share the privilege, although destined for the profession of arms, was the result of circumstances. His guardian, Don Manuel Alvarez, although worldly and selfish, still retained a lingering regard for the memory of that lost brother, whose latest message to him had been, Have my boy carefully educated. And, moreover, he could scarcely have left the high-spirited youth to wear out the years that must elapse before he could obtain his commission in the dreary solitude of his mountain home, with Diego and Dolores for companions, and for sole amusement, a horse and a few greyhounds. Better that he should take his chance at Alcala, and enjoy himself there as best he might, with no obligation to severe studying, and but one duty strongly impressed upon him, that of keeping out of debt. He derived real benefit from the university training, though no academic laurels rested on his brow, nor did he take a degree. Fray Sebastian had taught him to read and write, and even contrived to pass him through the Latin grammar, of which he afterwards remembered scarcely anything. To have urged him to learn more would have required severity only too popular at the time, but this Fray Sebastian was too timid, too prudent, perhaps, to employ, while of interesting him in his studies he never thought. At Alcala, however, he was interested— he did not care indeed for the ordinary scholastic course, but he found in the college library all of the books yet written in his native language, and it was then the palmy age of Spanish literature. Beginning with the poems and romances related to the history of this country, he read through everything—poetry, romance, history, science—nothing came amiss to him, except perhaps theology. He studied with a special care all that had reference to the story of the New World, whether he hoped one day to go. He attended lectures— he even acquired Latin enough to learn anything he really wanted to know, and could not find except in that language. Thus at the end of his four years' residence he had acquired a good deal of useful, though somewhat desultory, information, and he had gained the art of expressing himself in the purest Castilian, by tongue or pen, with energy, vigor, and precision. The sixteenth century gives us many specimens of such men, and not a few of them were Spaniards, men of intelligence and general cultivation, whose profession was that of arms, but who can handle the pen with as much ease and dexterity as the sword, men who could not only do valiant deeds, but also describe them when done, and that often with singular effectiveness. With his contemporaries Juan was popular, for his pride was inaggressive, and his fiery temper was counterbalanced by great generosity of disposition. During his residence at Alcala he fought three duels, one to chastise a fellow-student who had called his brother, Doña Carlotta, the other two on being provoked by the far more serious offense of covert sneers at his father's memory. 
He also came severely a youth whom he did not think of sufficient rank to honor with his sword, merely for observing when Carlos won a prize from him. Don Carlos Alvarez unites genius and industry, as he would need to do, who is the son of his own good works. But afterwards, when the same student was in danger through poverty of having to give up his career and return home, Juan stole into his chamber during his absence, and furtively deposited four gold ducats, which he could ill spare, between the leaves of his breviary. Far more outwardly successful, but more really disastrous, was the academic career of Carlos. As a student of theology, most of his days, and even some of his nights, were spent over the musty tomes of the schoolmen. Like living water on the desert, his young, bright intellect was poured out on the dreary sands of scholastic divinity, little else, in truth, than bad metaphysics, to no appreciable result except its own utter waste. The kindred study of casuistry was even worse than waste of intellect. It was positive defilement and degradation. It was bad enough to tread with painful steps through roads that led nowhere, but it became worse when the roads were miry and the mud at every step clung to the traveller's feet. Though here the parallel must cease, for the moral defilement, alas, is the most deadly and dangerous when least felt or heeded. Fortunately, or unfortunately, according to how we look on things seen or not seen, Carlos offered to his instructors admirable raw material out of which to fashion a successful, even a great churchman. He came to them a stripling of fifteen, innocent, truthful, affectionate. He had parts, as they styled them, and singularly good ones. He had just the acute perception, the fine and ready wit, which enabled him to cut his way through scholastic subtleties and conceits with ease and credit, and, to do his teachers justice, they sharpened his intellectual weapon well, until its temper grew as exquisite as that of the scimitar of Saladin, which could divide a gauze handkerchief by the thread at a single blow. But how would it fare with such a weapon, and with him who, having proved no other, could wield only that in the great conflict with the dragon that guarded the golden apples of truth? The question is idle, for truth was a luxury of which Carlos was not taught to dream. To find truth, to think truth, to speak truth, to act truth, was not placed before him as an object worth his attainment. Not the true, but the best, was always held up to him as the mark to be aimed at, the best for the church, the best for his family, the best for himself. He had much imagination. He was quick in invention and ready in expedience, good gifts in themselves, but very perilous where the sense of truth is lacking or blunted. He was timid, as sensitive and reflective natures are apt to be, perhaps also from physical causes. And in those rough ages, the church offered almost the only path in which the timid man could not only escape infamy, but actually attain to honor. In her service a strong head could more than atone for weak nerves. Power, fame, wealth, might be gained in abundance by the churchman without stirring from his cell or chapel, or facing a single drawn sword or loaded musket. Always provided that his subtle, cultivated intellect could guide the rough hands that wielded the swords, or better still, the crowned head that commanded them. There may have been even then at the very university, there certainly were a few years earlier, a little band of students who had quite other aims and who followed other studies than those from which Carlos hoped to read worldly success and fame. These youths really desired to find the truth and to keep it, and therefore they turned from the pages of the fathers and the schoolmen to the scriptures in the original language. But the Biblists, as they were called, were few and obscure. Carlos did not, during his whole term of residence, come in contact with any of them. The study of Hebrew and even of Greek was by this time discouraged. 
the breath of calumny had blown upon it, linking it with all that was horrible in the eyes of the Spanish Catholics, summed up in the one word, heresy. Carlos never even dreamed of any excursion out of the beaten path marked for him, and which he was travelling so successfully as to distance nearly all his competitors. Both Juan and Carlos still clung fondly to their early dream, though their wider knowledge had necessarily modified some of its details. Carlos, at least, was not quite so confident as he had once been about the existence of El Dorado, but he was as firmly determined as Juan to search out the mystery of their father's fate, and either to clasp his living hand or to stand beside his grave. The love of the brothers and their trust in each other had only strengthened with their years, and was beautiful to witness. Occasional journeys to Seville, and brief intervals of making holiday there, varied the monotony of their college life, and were not without important results. It was the summer of 1556. The great Carlos, so lately king and kaiser, had laid down the heavy burden of sovereignty, and would soon be on his way to pleasant San Juste, to mortify the flesh, and prepare for his approaching end, as the world believed. But in reality, to eat, drink, and enjoy himself, as well as his worn-out body and mind would allow him. Just then, our young Juan, healthy, hearty, hopeful, and with the world before him, received the long-wished-for appointment in the army of the new king of all the Spains, Don Felipe Segunde. The brothers have eaten their last temperate meal together, in their handsome, though not very comfortable, lodging at Alcala. Juan pushes away the wine-cup that Carlos would fain have refilled, and toys absently with the rind of a melon. Carlos, he says, without looking his brother in the face, remember that thing of which we spoke? Adding in lower and more earnest tones, and so may God remember thee. Surely, brother, you have, however, little to fear. Little to fear? And there was the old quick flash in the dark eyes. Because, forsooth, to spare my aunt's selfishness and my cousin's vanity, she must not be seen at dance or theatre or bull-feast. It is enough for her to show her face on the Alameda or at mass to raise me up a host of rivals. Still my uncle favors you, and Doña Beatrice herself would not be found of a different mind when you come home with your promotion and your glory, as you will, my Rui. Then, brother, watch thou in my absence, and fail not to speak the right word at the right moment, as thou canst so well. So shall I hold myself at ease, and give my whole mind to the noble task of breaking the heads of all the enemies of my liege lord the king. Then rising from the table, he girt on his new Toledo sword with his embroidered belt, threw over his shoulders his short scarlet cloak, and flung a gay velvet montero over his rich black curls. Don Carlos went out with him, and mounting the horses, a lad from their country home held in readiness, they rode together down the street and through the gate of Alcala. Don Juan followed by many an admiring gaze, and many a hearty, con Dios. from his late companions. End of chapter 4